0: So we have been longing since last night at about half past seven for a happy ending. We've been on, on edge. I could see it in your faces, uh, all of you preoccupied with what was going to happen in the story. We do love a happy ending. In fact, there's something that when we see the happy ending in a, in a film or we read it in a book, there is something that transcends our experience. There is something, it seems, that is hardwired into our humanity that causes us To long for and to delight when we get a happy ending. That's certainly the case for me. I know it's the case for many. Uh, And I know then that is why I still to this day, probably 12 years after I watched it, I'm angry and upset and unsettled by Million Dollar Baby. Um, I don't know if you've seen that film. It has a terrible ending. And when I watched it for the first time, I was furious at the end. Just telling you that. <laughs> because we love a happy ending. And when we don't get one, we feel robbed. I felt robbed. And I'm still, as I say, all these years later, unsettled by that. We don't need to talk about that now. It's okay. We've been hoping that for Ruth and Boaz and by association, Naomi, this whole story will come together. We saw yesterday morning this deep and enduring and it seemed in intractable misery and sadness. And there was a glimmer of light last night with the arrival of Boaz, and uh, we're wondering how it's going to happen, and we sense, I think, in ourselves a desire at this point in the story to want to get ahead of ourselves a little bit like Naomi was trying to do with her plan for the threshing floor, and yet we come to the end last night and realize that there's one man who certainly isn't going to get out ahead of the Lord's providence, and that is Boaz. He's a good man. He is a man full of integrity Yes, he may be, we have heard last night, a guardian redeemer, and therefore he is qualified to carry on the line of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, but there is someone who by law has first refusal, so how is it going to go? And as chapter four unfolds, as we've just read, well, the theme at the heart of this chapter is redemption, and what we see is this happy ending. But it's important to recognize that this happy ending has significance beyond the events themselves. Indeed, it it points to a much bigger happy ending. Not just simply for uh, Boaz and Ruth, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi. And as it reaches forward to King David at the end of the uh, family line, uh, at the end of the book. But it is pointing to the happy ending envisaged by Tolkien, when he talked about everything sad coming untrue for those who are in the presence of God and who experience the joy of that for eternity. That's where we're headed this morning. So let's trace it through. Three points, you see them on page 13. Number one, we have a redeemer for Ruth. Verse one, we have a redeemer for Ruth. We want this faithful young lady who has sacrificed so much to find love in life, and we want her to find it with this faithful, wonderful older man called Boaz, but like I said last night, where our hearts are in our mouths, so we come to verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went to the town gate, sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer that he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, sit down. And he went and sat down. Again, a sign that this is an impressive man. Hey, come over here and sit down, and the guy immediately does it. Remember yesterday? The Lord bless you, and they all say, and the Lord bless you. His character just seems to, seems to bubble up from all over the book. Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. Um, The town gate was where business was transacted. And a quorum of elders, the elders of of the town, would have been gathered. These were the officials who would ratify and legally recognize these sorts of transactions, especially in family matters like this. And Boaz starts with Naomi's land. Now, we haven't heard anything about this land up to this point in the story. Naomi, Elimelech actually, would have received this portion of land when the people returned from uh, Egypt. But that land would have been forfeited when they left to go to Moab. But there was this uh, interesting provision in the law that stated that a guardian redeemer could buy the land back. uh, So it was forfeited. It went to someone else when they went to Moab. But they come back and the law states that he can buy that land back and that the new owner couldn't refuse. Now what's Boaz doing? He's making this deal very attractive and we're reading and we're thinking, what on earth are you doing, Boaz? And then it happens, verse 4, end of verse 4, I will redeem it, Boaz. <laughs> We're hanging on for a happy ending, Boaz. But, verse 5, he knows what he's doing. Okay, you will redeem it, but just so you know, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property Ruth she's a Moabite just mem- remember that she's a Moabite and you will take her and you will agree by law to maintain the name of the dead with the property you will give that means you will give this lady a son and just so you know this son will keep the land that's the way that it works these are the stipulations of the lever law and what it meant is the cost to redeem would be his but the land never would. And so there's never going to be a return. In reality, Ruth would be a financial and a relational burden. Yes, I'll redeem the land. Oh, hang on. There are other stipulations, and I'm never actually going to benefit. So Boaz is actually cleverer than we think. Verse 6, Aha, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. It's a master stroke. Boaz knew what he was doing all along, and off comes the sandal. Uh, <laughs> well done, guys, uh, if you're into that kind of note. Taking off the sandal, it was a, 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 it was a symbol. It was a way of saying, uh, I will walk in your shoes in this matter. It was an early form of signing the paperwork, giving your word to something, officially ratifying something. We should reintroduce it. I think it would be hilarious. You go into the bank. <laughs> I Maybe mean, that's just me. And Boaz makes it official. Verse 9, Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, the rubber stamp, Today you are all my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon, and I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Melon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. And then all those who have gathered agree. And there's this prayer for blessing. Verse 11, may Ruth, again, it's literally the woman or, or technically the wife, uh, may the wife, that is the one who has now been completely grafted in to Uh, the people of Israel, Um, just as she professed this courageous uh, commitment to the God of the covenant back in chapter one, just as she demonstrated that commitment in chapter two by going and getting a job to provide for and to protect uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law. And so now it is fully ratified. She is a full Israelite with all of the rights of Israel by marriage. And they say, may she be like Rachel and Leah, that is, may she be as fertile and instrumental in the life of the nation as these ladies who mothered the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 12, may your family be like that of Perez. That is, may they be as prominent in the history of Israel as Perez. As with Tamar, born to a foreigner whom the Lord used to perpetuate a family on the verge of extinction. Remember, that's where they were. It was Naomi and two outsiders. They're on the way back. One of the outsiders remains an outsider. One of the outsiders weds herself to Naomi. The family looks like it's all about to be uh, blown out completely. And yet here we are now at the end of chapter 4. Verse 12 of chapter 4 in this wonderful celebratory tone. The family is not going to be wiped out. And so Boaz, he has continued to demonstrate his integrity in the way that he has behaved. He has done right by the law. And he's also showing his kindness as well. He has gone beyond the Leverett requirements. Uh, The Leverett requirement was that he he would marry Naomi. He had no responsibility to Ruth. And yet he has taken that responsibility to himself. He has gone beyond the requirements in order to serve at great cost to himself. To redeem this archetypal outsider to the people of God. She was disqualified in terms of her race, her gender, her ethnicity, uh, her status. Utterly hopeless and yet Boaz is Ruth's redeemer. Let's just pause for a second. Did you notice as we've looked back across the last two days, did you notice how much luck there was in the story? Chapter 1 verse 22, Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem Just as the barley harvest is beginning, that's a stroke of luck. They were hungry, they needed food, and it's just coming in. Chapter 2, verse 3, Ruth went to glean leftover grain. As it turned out, we were told, she found herself in the field of a man called Boaz. That was lucky. (laughs) Because he's generous and a righteous man. But (laughs) luck As luck would have it, he happens to be from the line of Elimelech as well. Which by sheer coincidence meant that he was a guardian redeemer. And then 4 verse 1, Boaz goes to the gate. And he sits down as luck would have it. Just as the guardian redeemer that he needs to meet is coming along. This family should have bought a lottery ticket. They are incredibly lucky. They're not lucky at all, are they? The author is showing us that every step of the way from Bethlehem to Moab, back to Bethlehem, to the threshing floor, and back to the marriage bed, God is at work. Behind every step from sorrow to joy stands a sovereign God who is weaving his beautiful tapestry. Or if we go back to that image of the great painting, he is pulling all of the splodges together to make a beautiful portrait for the good of his people and the praise and glory of his name. Said it a number of times. This weekend, whatever your situation this morning, our great triune God is at work. Don't think that He's just started the creation off and He has kind of left it up to you now. He stands behind every detail of your life. So keep trusting Him, keep leaning on Him, go to Him, be prayerful, be humble, be thankful and receive the path that he has asked you to walk, no matter how twisty it might be, no matter how forceful the winds on that path might be, keep clinging to him. He is working his purposes out for your good and his glory. So Boaz is a redeemer for Ruth. And we're told, verse 13, they have a son. And in many ways, really, that's, the end of the story for these two characters, Boaz and Ruth. And if we want just a simple, they meet, they fall in love, the end, well, we're done at this point. It hasn't been as simple as that, but actually, if we simply want, we could roll the credits at this point if it's just about them. But we know that there are more layers to the story than that, and so, secondly, we see that we have a redeemer for Naomi. Naomi returns to the center stage in the story at this point. The baby's born to Ruth. But having been born to Ruth, it is, he is then uh, brought to Naomi. And look at how this baby is described. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife when he made love to her. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi. Just been told about her conceiving and about him being born. And yet, verse 14, the Lord has not left you, Naomi, without a guardian redeemer. Verse 15, he will renew your life and sustain you. Naomi, verse 17, has a son. This is the only time, to my knowledge, in the Old Testament where the guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer, uh, the Goel, is given, that name is given to a child. Ruth has given this child to Naomi as her own. And because through Ruth, he is a descendant of Melan, her son, he will be her guardian redeemer. Naomi doesn't speak in these verses. She would plenty to say in her misery and in her bitterness. She was very vocal in terms of hatching her plans to try and make all this happen, and yet now she's just been silenced, Overwhelmed completely lost for words. She now has a child who will grow to care for and provide for her in her old age. But most significantly, he will perpetuate the family name. Naomi's shame because of her childlessness will be gone. And the family name of Elimelech will no longer be extinguished with her death. This baby that she silently holds in her arms, Signals the return of God's blessing and All of that bitterness with which the story began has been swallowed up with joy Her emptiness has been filled This baby is the redeemer that Naomi had longed for and the redemption That he will bring was something that this aging widow had doubtless thought that she had missed completely But no, God has been faithful and kind. What God has done is completely turned her life around. Do you have a category in your thinking for a God that powerful in your life and in your circumstances? Do you believe that God can turn your circumstances around wherever he meets you? or do you think that you are too far gone? Let me tell you, you're not. Your circumstances are not beyond his reach. They are not beyond his transforming power. Naomi had endured terrible loss and terrible pain, and it felt to her that God had forgotten her and her family. He had afflicted her. Uh, His dealings with her were simply harsh. But just as the book opened, With the names to highlight the intimate knowledge of real life that God has. So now we see that he was at work all along. In and through all of her twists and turns to accomplish his perfect purposes. And he is doing the same in your life. Say it again. Some of these things, some of the things that are going on in your life will confuse you. Some of them will be hurt, will cause you hurt. Some of them will lead you to ask why. And you might not get an answer to that question, this side of glory. But with the eyes of faith, we can look at the example of Naomi and we can recognize that just as she, in the end, receives a Redeemer who will meet her need and give her hope for the future, so in Christ we have the promise that He will do the same for us. We don't always get what we want from God in this life, the provision and the hope uh, for Naomi, represented in this baby, though, gives us a glimpse of what we have in the one to whom the conclusion of this story points, so God gives a redeemer for Ruth in Boaz, she gives a redeemer he gives a redeemer for Naomi in the baby and Thirdly, then we see that he provides; he is providing a redeemer for the whole world. The two things about these closing verses are strange. First, is that in a culture where sons are cherished and held in the highest esteem, verse fifteen tells us that Ruth, the Moabite, is better to Naomi than seven sons. That's an odd thing to say. Why is it that this outsider woman is better? than that which was cherished most, most highly in the nation, in the land. The second unusual thing is that this is, this is the climax of a love story. And the climax of the love story is actually a list of names. It could feel a bit like our happy ending has been blunted a bit by a history nerd. Uh, um, yes, uh, just to be clear, um, we're thinking wonderful it's all coming together. Uh, there, there are a list of names I need to remind you of. So what's going on? Why does he give us a family tree? Well, the two are related and they're not as strange as it may seem. Ruth is better than seven sons because of what this list of names actually tells us. Verse 18, this, is, this then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Perez de Boaz, that time represents the time in the history of God's people between um, his great promises to have a people for himself who would live in his land under his blessing through the exodus to the return to the land and now the rebellion and chaos of life in the time of the judges. But this son now given to Naomi, isn't just any old son because this Obed is in the line and the ancestry of King David, the one who would bring peace and prosperity to God's people. And then this also means that she has been grafted into the line and the ancestry of great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the redeemer for the whole world. The genealogy, the list of names at the start of Luke chapter 1 makes this connection explicit. So, you can see then at the end here, these names aren't just some historical nerdery. Instead, they take us to the climax of the whole narrative. And that is that through the kindness of God, seen in the kindness shown by the characters in this story, he has come to this one family in the midst of chaos and rebellion and suffering and through them he is bringing his great redeemer. The book opens by rooting us in the days when the judges ruled and there was no king in the land. That's what we're told. And it closes by pointing us to King Jesus. The one through whom we can all be redeemed. Redemption. Redemption is being purchased out of slavery to go free. Being bought out of bondage in order to be liberated. Now, freedom is surely one of the cardinal virtues of our cultural moment. And to be free is considered to be such, it is so important, it is to be able to be whoever you want to be and to do whatever you want to do. But the reality is that whatever we set our hearts on ends up controlling us. If we want to have a particular lifestyle, all of our time and our effort is invested in having the stuff and living that life. Getting that thing is what we invest ourselves in and it's all consuming and it is controlling us. And we're fools if we think it isn't controlling us. And if we're prepared to be honest with ourselves, if we're prepared to be honest about the way that our desires control us and when those desires aren't for God, how destructive they are, we'll be forced to admit that we're not actually as free as we might want to be. Our culture isn't as free as it, as it purports. We are slaves. Slave Slavery is the only alternative to freedom. And the only thing a slave can hope for isn't that they're able to get themselves out because that's the whole point. When you're enslaved, you can't do that. The only thing a slave can hope for is that someone will come and set them free. Slaves need a redeemer. And Jesus is the world's redeemer. He is our ultimate guardian redeemer who like Boaz lived in obedience to God's law, who bore the cost of our failure to keep the law, to purchase us out of our sin and deliver us from the mess and the failures of our past. So we're not just redeemed from poverty and sadness and racial outsiderness like Ruth, but we're redeemed from the spiritual bankruptcy and death in which our sin holds us captive. We're not just redeemed from shame and bitterness and the hopelessness of losing your family line like Naomi, but from the shame of sin and the stains of every bad thing we have ever done and indeed every bad thing we ever will do. We're not just redeemed for a better life now like Ruth and Naomi. We in Christ are redeemed for eternity. Eternity with the God in whose presence there is the fullness of joy. And Ruth shows us in closing that this redemption is for everyone. If the archetypal outsider to the people of God, she's poor, she's racially disqualified, she's a woman in that culture, that was problematic. If she was used by God as a forebear for the great redeemer, the Lord Jesus, how can any ethnicity or background be disqualified on those terms? Ruth gives us a big vision for the people whom the Lord will redeem. Take heart in your work in Oxford as a church. All of those people that live around the church, all of those people in East Oxford that you're connected to, nothing about their background disqualifies them from coming to know this Redeemer. And for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ, I said this last night. If you've come and you feel that you're stuck in your sin, remember that you have a Redeemer. And remember that through the cross, the redemption that He brings has delivered the decisive blow against that sin. And that through His Holy Spirit, He enables you to stand against it, to walk away from it. You are no longer bound to sin. You can say no, you can resist, you don't have to sin you're free. So don't be drawn back into the prison cell of sin. It feels like, in my experience so often, it feels like I've, uh, I know all of this theology about redemption. I know Christ as the redeemer. It's as if I was in my prison cell. I was enslaved to sin. And he didn't just come and unlock the door and go, you can go yourself now. It's like he blew the, one of the walls off completely. And he said, you're free to go. And I go and I enjoy it. There's something that I feel just keeps drawing me back. And I choose to go back into the cell. I choose to go back to like a dog returning to its vomit. Like I, 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 I feel like that's my identity. It's not. You've been redeemed. Uh, Russell Moore is, I'll finish with this. Uh, Russell Moore is an American uh, theologian. He, he's written a great book called Adopted for Life. Uh, that he and his wife adopted two little Russian boys from an orphanage in Russia and uh, it's a fantastic story the book is wonderfully encouraging and uh, theologically rich about the theology of adoption but one of the things that he says is at one point when they finally went back to this awful stinking orphanage uh, to, to pick up their sons they, um, they went in they picked them up they brought them out and uh, as they left the orphanage, they put them in the back seat of the car and they were driving off to go to the airport. And uh, as they drove away from this orphanage, the two boys started to scream and to reach back to the orphanage, this horrendously filthy, stinking, disgusting place. a place where they were enslaved, really, a place where they had no hope except that someone would come from the outside and bring them out. And Russell Moore said it was terrifying for him, and he said they did that because that was what was real, that was home, and that was familiar. And they were terrified to leave. And I think for many of us, we choose that. Our sin has been so, uh, we're so deeply, it's so deeply ingrained in who we are that we, uh, we, we can't see what our redemption has won for us, the freedom and the liberty. Uh, it has taken us away from that which is stinking and filthy and, and destructive, and we, we go back because it's familiar. It's home. It's not. If you're in Christ, you're free. That is what he has done for us. And you can enjoy the liberty that he brings. Because, because when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. It's not simple or easy. But it's real. And in Christ, there is a really happy ending. Let's pray. Our Father, we do really praise you with great joy for all that you've done for us in Christ. And thank you for how the story of Ruth points us to that reality. And we pray that we might sing now with real celebration and that we might go from here this weekend with a real uh, freshness of joy in our hearts for all that you've done for us in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.